The Guardian. Good Morgan Brass, after sun or even tide, wherever you are around the width of our heavenly orb, and welcome to week whatever it may be in the World Wicketing Whack Fest Cup. It was a week of wonder and a week of wincing, a week of wipeouts and a week of redemption. So full and varied that our last conversation is now shrouded in the mists of time. West Indies celebrated a double century, then conceded as many runs themselves in about five minutes. AB de Villiers was evicted from the SCG for bullying. Trans-Tasman rivals gathered to see who could collapse hardest with the canary yellow ahead by a slender beak. Pakistan's pinstripes finally found an opponent to suit, while Kumar Sangakara slid serenely up the list of one-day centurions, proving that bowling to him is like trying to punch out a ghost. The Emiratis went toe-to-toe with an Irish side that stared at defeat. Then a man with a plan from Afghanistan went bang-bang with a grand slam. He hit the hammer like a Trans Am, then handing the banner on to Zadran, plucked the Tam O'Shander like a Bantam. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, then I have even less idea. But we'll unravel all these yarns and more on Episode 3 of the Guardian World Cup Podcast. Jeff Lemon with you as your host for the day. And joining me... ABC writer, radio caller and all-round cricketing ragtime band Adam Collins, author of enough cricket books to reach the moon and back and then tell you how the pitch has played up there, Gideon Haig, and as ever, my guardian comrade-in-arms on the battlefields of lucid prose, Russell Jackson. Now, to start off this week, we want to talk about feelings. We, we want to talk about, when people talk about associate cricket, they're often very condescending. They say, oh, these plucky little chaps, they, they really got in and tried their hardest. But I'm going to go on the record and say the best two matches of this World Cup so far have been in the last week. They were the United Arab Emirates versus Ireland and Afghanistan versus Scotland. Russell, you and I were following the UAE game with rapt attention and... We really can't go past for a cricketing story and and a World Cup hero, Shaiman Anwar, the Emirati batsman. He came out in that first innings in all sorts of trouble. They were four for 78 when he came to the crease. Soon after, they were six for 131. But he charged on and scored the Emirates' first ever World Cup century, 106 from 83 balls, uh, with a giant grin on his face the whole time. And it was a wonderful thing to see. It was. And just going back to your point about the way we sometimes condescend uh, about the, the associates, the the thing that's been remarkable in this tournament, I guess, is aside from Anwar, as you say, smiling his way through that hundred as he hacked and heaved and irritated Kevin O'Brien to distraction. Uh, that aside, the associates in this tournament have been notable for the way that they haven't smiled and the way that they haven't been the lapdogs, the way they haven't played to that narrative of, you know, we're plucky upstarts and we're going to smile our way to a, you know, honourable loss. It just hasn't been that way. You know, we've seen Ireland have been quite confrontational, both in a playing sense and also their statements after games. And, you know, they, they got over the line in this game. And I think it a little bit of that we know to that, you know, that attitude that they've got and that a lot of the associates have got. We've seen it with Afghanistan, obviously. So, yeah, it was, um, like you said, it was one of the best games of the tournament. And that's been the story of the tournament is that New Zealand, Australia aside, the the associate games have been the the ones to watch. And there was some real confrontation there. You mentioned Kevin O'Brien. Kevin O'Brien had an over late in the innings bowling to Shaman Anwar where he was trying to bowl about two yards outside the off stump mm. so that um, Shaman wouldn't be able to reach the ball. Shaman Anwar then does this kind of rabbit hop 
and takes guard on that line, on the return crease, leaving his stumps about two metres behind him, um, then gets the ball bowled to him, tries to slog it to the onside, top edges it over third man for four, um, and then Kevin O'Brien just glares at him, then comes in and refuses to bowl the next two balls because he wants to see where the batsman's yes. going, then bounces him and gets clobbered for four mm. through mid-wicket. Uh, Adam, I mean, magnificent theatre, that, that entire innings. Absolutely. It was a, a great advertisement for the game, the first game of the tournament to go down to the penultimate over as well. Um, it really now puts Ireland in a fantastic position as well. Looking forward, they're every chance to finish third in that pool B. Um, they've got the perfect draw, having had their two most winnable group games, first and second, and now they've, they're afforded the opportunity of effectively four hits at getting that third win, which would see mm. them through to the second round. And that would make an enormous statement after all the commentary um, that's done the rounds over the last fortnight um, supporting their um, inclusion in the 2019 World Cup. Coming third rather than just sneaking in would go a long way to validating their credentials. Yeah, I mean they're well up the table now, um, and you know UAE got got really close to clinching mm-hmm. that win as well. I think Gideon, that was the thing I was most impressed about. I mean they'd batted well, made a good target, made two hundred and seventy eight, mm-hmm. but then when it came to the bowling, you know Ireland only needed about thirty of the last five overs, and the UAE just wouldn't go away. Mm-hmm. They, they kept their mm-hmm. cool in what you know what's a fairly unprecedented situation for them, um, and Amjad Javed particularly bowling at the death mm-hmm. was was really hard to get away and, and Ireland only just scraped across the line. Well, I mean, all games for associate members are meaningful. You know, the, it's the full members who play the meaningless cricket in uh, in the current international setup. Every game for an associate member, whether it's in the World Cup or not, counts because their funding often depends upon it. And, you know, thank God for the associates in this tournament because they have provided the most meaningful cricket. They have provided the most... The, the cricket that's wound its way deepest into, uh, into each game. So many of the uh, contests between full members have been blowouts. The margins have been enormous. But it seems almost as though the associates play a different brand of ODI cricket, old-fashioned ODI cricket, that converges on a close result. Perhaps because they don't have the, the power-packed batting lineups that the bigger nations have. Mm. Uh, it's, it's nip and tuck all the way through. And um, you know, if you'd wanted a World Cup based around evenly matched sides, which t- Dave Richardson uh, purported to believe on the, uh, on the eve of the tournament, then that's exactly what the associates have provided. And it's interesting that you know, you're talking about meaningless games. For instance, you know, England have been wiped off the, the field mm. so far by all of the other full nations that mm. they've played, but could still get their way into a quarterfinal mm. without too much difficulty. Mm. I mean, that really emphasises the idea of, of a lot of these matches being meaningless for the, for the full members, mm. but uh, meaning a lot more for, for those outside the, the inner circle. That's right. I think that that's one of the major shortcomings of the format of this tournament. It's that it's reducing the second round to eight rather than six. It does mean you get a lot of games between um, test-playing nations, which don't have an enormous amount of relevance, and we'll speak about that later today in terms of the games being played this week. But Associate Nations, as you said, Gideon, every game is relevant, every game matters, and it provides a far more relevant contest for those who are viewing. And that's what Dave Richardson was speaking about before the tournament. Um, That's precisely what they're delivering. And I think trimming back uh, to 10 nations for the next World Cup, something that is probably massively underrated in that sense is the loss of that new narrative of the Mm, new sides where there are there are, there are personality dynamics at play between the major nations that are so well-established and so familiar mm. to us that they become a bit mundane. And that's something that's really jolted this tournament is you've got a guy like uh, Shapur Zadran, you've got a guy like Kevin O'Brien, Shaman Anwar, who 
are these characters that come out of nowhere and you think, mm. wow, I can be surprised by something that one day international cricket offers, which is not something we often associate with one day mm. international cricket now. Right. I mean, we, we've seen so many contests between the same sides. If, if you've got India bowling up to play Sri Lanka again or Australia playing England again, you know, we've spent most of the last two years watching Australia play England mm. and we're going to mm. roll straight into another Ashes mm. series. And that was something that was so great about the New Zealand-Australia game yesterday is these are two sides who, despite being at their you know, their peak of the last five-year cycle mm. probably in ODI cricket, have not faced each other. So we haven't had you know, that Bolt versus the Australian mm. batsman, Stark versus these these mm. Kiwi batsmen mm. who have come on. And you you realise that when you see it. You, you say, hey, there's a rivalry that could yeah. develop here, but we're just not exposed to it. Thank goodness Australia and India were kept in separate groups because I don't think I could have sta- stood <laughs> to see another ODI between those two countries. You may yet live to see another. <laughs> At least it would be meaningful. Um, but, I mean, particularly, say, for Ireland, what I've got, also got a lot of joy at is someone like Paul Sterling, who honestly looks and plays like a park cricketer, mm. but does so excellently. You know, he's, he's an aggressive opening batsman. He's made a lot of runs. But the way when he, he came on to bowl against um, the UAE, and he bowled a full 10-over spell, I think he might have even bowled it straight through. He came on pretty early in the day. And he's bowling that kind of park off spin mm. that, you know, mm. lobs up, doesn't do much, doesn't mm. turn much but is deceptively hard to hit. He bowled 10 overs, 2 for 27, um, which is the sort of perfect crap-off spinner um, <laughs> yeah. spell to, to come in and deliver, yet he's doing it in international mm. cricket. He's a little sort of portly, beardy, angry-looking man, um, and he came in and played this brilliant sort of pro-am cricket, which, which is actually working. Like, mm. he's actually, you know, he's getting results. It is, and there's the element of surprise with that, and that was, that was another interesting part of some of these matchups in the last week is that you've got players who are so ingrained in their routines mm. of playing against the couple of nations that they play against and all of a sudden they're facing the trajectory from a bowler mm. that they're just not used yes. to. Um, and there's a great appeal to that in this World Cup. And the whole idea of a competition between Ireland and the UAE or Afghanistan and Scotland, you know, we are not talking about traditional <laughs> rivalries here. We're actually talking about the sheer wonder of cricket that it can transcend all the all the various cultural differences and bring together two nations on the cricket field, 11 versus 11. Now, on that, the Afghanistan v Scotland game, you know, you couldn't have scripted the fairy tale any better, really. People love the story of the Afghanistan team. You know, 14 years ago, they weren't playing cricket. They didn't have a, an international team. Nobody was thinking about that. They've made that happen um, with, you know, very limited opportunities. Mm. They've won their way through into this World Cup. They've vaulted up through the qualifying groups um, and they were so keen to get their first World Cup win. And as were Scotland, who were you know, who've, who've made great bounds really in in recent years in professionalising and establishing their team, um, and it was one of those classic sort of arm wrestle ODIs. You know, mm. Scotland struggled their way to two hundred and ten, thanks largely to uh, to Hark, who's their very 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 slow. Speaking of Park off spinners, you know, beautiful looping slow sort of forty mile an hour kind of off spinner. Um, he hung around at at the bottom of the order and made a very stubborn 31 and got them up past 200. So they've got their 210. Everyone's thinking, well, Afghanistan should mm. get this but could easily choke. Mm. Choke they duly started to do with, uh, you know, what, about seven single-figure scores through that scorecard. But then Samuel Shenwari, I mean, if 
if Shaiman Anwar's innings was about blithely smiling and scything people over the infield and, and looking like he was having the time of his life while while not backing down, Shenwari was the angriest man I've mm. ever seen mm. in an international mm. cricket match. He was he was stubborn. He was watching his teammates go down. At one stage, he had about 40 off 100 balls. He was blocking out everything. Everyone was bagging him, saying, what does he think this is a test match? Um, and he just kept blocking and kept blocking. When uh, Dolat Zadran, who was batting at number uh, nine, got himself out trying a slog. He'd been in there for quite a while. Um, Shenwari just yelled him off the mm. field. You know, what the hell did you think you were doing? What was that shot? I told you to block it. And he said after the game, you know, um, Dorlat had kept saying, oh, I can hit, I can hit, let me hit. And, it, and Shenwari was saying, I can hit too. I'm not hitting. That's why you don't hit. And he just balled him off the field, stuck around, and then right late in the piece started smacking sixes, got his way up to 96, mm. got Afghanistan to within uh, a few runs of the win, and then Hamid Hassan and Shapur Zadran had to take them home, the last wicket pair, um, scraping home nine down to get to that 211. I mean, he couldn't have scripted it. He gave them a spray in the presser too, didn't he? He said, he said to the tail enders, stay pitch doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I just enjoyed the look of him sitting there with his full kit on after he'd been dismissed. Mm. One of the enduring memories of the World Cup mm. for me will be him with his helmet on, bat in hand, chewing on the chewing on the strap to the chin as he was watching his two mm. tail enders go at it to try and get the win. It was magnificent. They wanted it so badly. I was sort of following the end of that game as I was watching the Sri Lanka game live, so I couldn't see it. But I must admit that when I saw that Shapur and Hamid Hassan were in and I think it was 15 runs required, I thought of of the attitude that they've brought to their bowling Mm, mm. and I saw the equation and I actually thought to myself, they're going to knock those runs. They're going to knock those runs off. I had the same thought. Against yeah. all the mathematics, I mean, mm. uh, in the case of Shapur, he's played a hundred. As he went out to bat in his hundred and forty third game of professional cricket, he'd made just two hundred and five runs. So you wouldn't <laughs> say he was with a first class average of less than three. So you, you weren't expecting him to mm. uh, do it necessarily, but a very valuable fifteen not out to win the game. Yeah, so in the end, yeah, well, he's got uh, you know twelve of ten balls with two boundaries, which is you know what's that? It's about five uh, percent of his total career runs. And, that, like and that almost the shock in him when he did hit that mm. four. Yes, that there was almost mm. a disbelief that mm. they. Done it, and then he just did that wild lap of celebration that was even longer than his run-up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean Scotland, you know, heartbreaking for Scotland because they thought they had this in the bag. You know, they've got their two ten on the board. They mm. had their worries. You know, they sort of collapsed early. They were eight for one forty four, and um, and then managed to to get their way up to that decent score but then they had uh, Afghanistan at 7 for 97 yeah. and they would have thought we're just strolling this in we're mm. going to have our first win you know we'll be the party poopers slightly because everyone's barracking for the romantic story but then that partnership you know Shenwari with Dorlat first you know they put on another 40 or so and then he puts on another 50 with Hamid Hassan just blocking and blocking mm. at the other end 15 from 39 balls in a one day um and then having Shapur come in at the end and just, you know, get a nice full toss on his pads that he calmly leg glances for four runs and then takes off in the aeroplane and face plants in the turf. Beautiful. And that's been an interesting, as good as the associates have been, there's been something, as a result of that, Scotland have been particularly disappointing that mm. you see the way the other associate sides have elevated themselves in this this tournament so far and going into this I mean we said it on the first week I said I thought Scotland would do the best of any of the associates which doesn't look like such a good prediction now but they've been as a result of the successes of the others they've they've looked particularly poor and disappointing and that's that's a good thing to be disappointed that that you know this these sides 
you know, a side like Scotland isn't fulfilling its potential. Well, they'll know now it's very unlikely they'll win a game mm. at this World Cup and that'll mean they've gone naught for three, three World Cup campaigns, mm. zero wins, and with the likelihood of their... Um, them being uh, out of the tournament in 2019 and 2023, that'll be a bitter pill to swallow, and it should be. Yeah, they have seemed genuinely disappointed with their performances on the field. I think, you know, someone like Matt Machen, there was quite a lot expected of him. Mm. I mean, mm. he had the chance to run out Zadran mm. late in that game that would have won it for Scotland and missed a throw from fairly close in. He hasn't made many Shocker. runs. Yeah. When he's, you know, he's he was he was tipped to to be one of the class performers. Yeah, but I mean, look, it's it's been it's been tremendous to see, and we're hoping to see a few more matches like that. Obviously, the UAE struggled against India at the Wacker, which you can't really um, blame them for not not having encountered that sort of bounce before. But there'll be, well, you know, a few more interesting contests. To it's come. a bit of a shame that uh, Afghanistan copped the co-host in the next two fixtures because they've just found a bit of a run of form in the same way that. Ireland benefited from getting their two most winnable games mm. first and second up. If Afghanistan were to cop um, the UAE, uh, sorry, rather to cop um, uh, to cop Bangladesh now, you'd have to fancy them. The way that Bangladesh had played and the way that um, the way that uh, Afghanistan had worked their way back into the tournament, they were five for five minutes there against Sri Lanka um, a Sunday, just eight days ago. They looked like they were going to win that game when the run rate went above seven and over required, mm. and they picked up two wickets in succession. Um, they weren't far away. If they were playing those two fixtures now, you'd um, you'd fancy them. Yeah, absolutely. That's gone. You are on the Guardian World Cup podcast with Jeff Lemon, Russell Jackson, Adam Collins, and Gideon Haig. We're going to look now at a team we haven't looked greatly at so far during this World Cup, and I reckon a lot of other people haven't looked much at them either. I'm talking about Sri Lanka. They were playing in New Zealand before the World Cup and doing fairly poorly leading up to this tournament. They were roundly beaten by New Zealand in the first match there, and pretty much written off, I think, by a lot of onlookers from that point on. They've come back tremendously, particularly in their last couple of games. They haven't been facing the the fiercest bowling attacks. But uh, against Bangladesh, they racked up one for 332 and then bowled out the Bangladeshis. And against England, they successfully chased 309, again, one wickets down. So 642 runs for two wickets lost in their last two games. Kumar Sangakkara has made centuries in both of those matches. And... uh, you know, Sri Lanka are, are on the march. Kumar Sangakkara is on the march. Yes, yeah, I always, I always worry a little bit about games like that where you, where you don't actually see the depth of the team tested, where it all depends on a couple of individuals. I don't think you can read terribly much into that. The quality of the opposition was ragged in Bangladesh's case and neurotic in the case of of England. I suspect that Sri Lanka are flattering to deceive. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that actually, and. Uh, one of the notable characteristics of both of those games was uh, inept bowling and fielding mm. on behalf of the opposition. Mm. You had basically England with four pace bowlers who looked exactly the same. I mean, I mm. think George Stabell said it on Crick Info, it's lucky that they have numbers and names on the back because otherwise <laughs> you wouldn't be able to tell the bowling, the England mm. bowling attack apart. And I think there's some truth to that. And Bangladesh were the same. They were just a shambles in the field and didn't didn't seem to be able to execute any kind of bowling plan. So Sri Lanka, as a result, have certainly, I guess, gathered some momentum in a sense. But but as Gideon said, I just don't really, I don't think either of these games really tells us much mm. about them. In any case, it's been a decent bounce back. That for mine were the most disappointing of the test playing nations in the first round of matches. Um, they were 
embarrassing against New Zealand first up. Their bowling mm. was atrocious, and they've, you know, they've effectively scored two for six hundred and forty mm. odd in their in their next hundred overs of cricket after that. Um, uh, after in their third and fourth fixture, massive form reversal, um, and they're getting Australia at a really good time. So they'll cop Australia next in. In uh, in in about six days from now, and Next Australia Saturday, got yeah. two and two flights across the continent between now and then. Um, they they they've got a lot to play for. If they knock off Australia and, uh, against the odds as it would be, they can go second in their group and have a very um, generous uh, elimination stage draw. Yeah, I a think, lot to play for. I think we're not just looking at Sangakara here. I mean, Joe Wardner had a hundred against Afghanistan. Sangakara's got those two in the last two games. Dilshan made a hundred and sixty, and Tiramano made a hundred against England. Uh, you know, he was dropped plenty of times. But to have that confidence with you know your top four have all made tons in the last three games. That's that is that Adam? Is that something they can bring into? this game against Australia? Well, they've made five tonnes in the tournament. The next best is three with South Africa, and two of those were against Zimbabwe when they were, you know, hitting a truckload of runs in the last 10 overs. So you've got to make the runs. Their bowling is ropey at best, Mm. but... Um, that fourth bowler, you know, the, between Harath, who's obviously better than that, but um, been filling that that role, and Dilshan and Malinga, who they're all well over thirty, well into their thirties, but they're mm. just kind of doing enough. Mm. Um, so it'll, it's a massive uphill battle with their bowling. But if they're making a truckload of runs, they're, mm. they're always going to be in, in the ball game. It is also the last chance for this side, isn't it? No, Jai oh, Wooden is so. on the way out. Malinga won't play another World Cup. Sangakara won't play another World Dilshan. Cup, really. So you know, if it's it's now or never for them, and they're entirely batting. Reliant, as mm-hmm. you said, Adam. I mean, England made their bowling look a lot better than it was, mm-hmm. even though they made 300, which England, you know, at this point are almost doing cartwheels, just, just getting mm-hmm. to 300. But there was a period in the middle of the innings there where they had none for 28 off 10 overs. Mm-hmm. And these are, the Sri Lankan bowlers are not bowlers who you should be mm-hmm. tied up by. And that that's probably the huge concern for Sri Lanka heading deep into the tournament is that a side like New Zealand... South Africa, Australia could just annihilate that bowling and post mm. 380 in the yeah. first innings. Is Malinga just a, a liability waiting to happen? You know, he's he's obviously very out of shape. He's come back from an injury. Um, he's struggled with that. He's he's struggled with his pace and his penetration. He's clearly overweight. Um, you know, he, we we know he's a he's he's a player that I've admired so much for so many years. But is he? Is he likely to get found out at some point? We bowled well against Bangladesh, but again, what's what's the marker there? Mm. Bangladesh have been very disappointing. Um, I think that he's going to have to, at the end of the day, fire if they're going to have any chance. He's their match winner still. He's their best chance, their most likely chance to run through a side. Um, you know, that's partly why they're still uh, just grouped outside the top four is a, a couple of their match winners in Sangakara, and I think Malinga still probably just falls into that category, although, as you say, it's been... He's probably now well beyond the peak of his powers. And the potential loss of Harath is huge in that mm. respect, that Vittori showed against Australia what value there is in a in a left-arm spinner who can tie a side up mm. in the middle overs, also take wickets as a result of that pressure, and the effect that the exertion of that pressure has at the other end mm. when you have a half-decent pace bowler. Now, Sri Lanka obviously, uh, arguably don't have that, but the injury to Harath then becomes a far bigger deal than it than it would mm. be in a good bowling mm. side. Mm. Particularly with their next game on the SCG where you'd imagine he would have been very useful. I mean yes. his his spell in the last in the World T twenty game against mm. New Zealand when he took sort of five or six for, for single figures, um, and you know, absolutely 
bewitched them. They didn't know what to do because mm. he was he was getting purchase and turn there. Um, he's been extremely underrated as a one-day bowler, even by his own country. He's only really made his way into the mm. short forms in, in the last couple of years. He's been extremely underrated as a bowler. Toot core, you know, he's um, for a lot of his career, he's overshadowed by Murley. And um, I don't think he registers on the radar of, of a lot of cricket fans. I think he's a wonderful bowler. Uh, does so much with with so little. I don't mean that in a condescending way, but you know, tiny little variations, little gnomic thoughts. Um, he's uh, he's a wonderful he's a wonderful cricket personality. It's great to see him playing in a World Cup. There's something about left arm orthodox spinners that can make the ball go straight on yeah. without changing their action, like Zulfikar yeah. at Pakistan. That mm. that ability to just let the let the ball go straight on with the arm, which causes a lot of trouble for right hand mm. batsmen when coming around the wicket. He also he's also a very unlikely looking cricketer, which I like. You know, he looks mm. like he could be um, sort of owning a petrol station or something <laughs> like that, and then he happens to roll out and and just you know absolutely mm. put this ball on a spot and took one of the best catches I've ever seen. Mm. That one handed screamer on their last tour to Australia down here down at um, Long Off, I think. So you know he's he's got a little um, mm. he, he's got a deceptive amount of cricketing ability. And he's what well, he has over yeah, two hundred Test wickets in mm. very mm. very few opportunities in in the game. So, I mean, are we going to see a are we going to see Herath ever get the credit he deserves? What's interesting to me is how long he will play on because he's mm. what thirty six, thirty seven mm. now, I think, and he's never been a fast mover in the field. No. He's never been any kind of presence with the bat, but. It, at his, if he can stay at his present level of fitness, which is just strolling up to the crease. And, you know, Shane Warne made a bit of a comment about the limited stride, his final stride before he delivers how short it is and how he's never in doubt of, of bowling a no ball because of that. And you wonder whether with such a low impact on that he places on his body, whether mm. he could be a guy who actually just keeps bowling until he's 45, mm. you know? Well, we see a couple of... You know, pretty decent players in the UAE side who are both forty-three mm. in the mm. you know, the captain and and uh, the star Karam Khan. Khan. So uh, multimedia superstar. Yeah, I Queer mean, sensation. There's you know, and 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 Mizbah's, you know close to forty-one and still mm. Pakistan's best mm. player. Do we do we think too much about players' age, particularly with someone like Herath, who's only really got into the team in his thirties? You know, he doesn't have that same thing of of maybe being burned out like someone who's been in since they were 21. That's right. He won't be lacking hunger. A lot of cricketers that get to their late 30s have probably been afforded many opportunities to play for their country, him less so. So I don't think that will be. Motivation won't be a problem. I, I, haven't, I don't know very much about the depth of Sri Lankan spinning stocks, but I can't imagine that he's being heavily pressed for his place at the moment. Probably the mystery spinner, um, uh, Ajantha Mendes, would be the one who, mm. who would be the, uh, the other option to take that mantle. Mm. He's got a very impressive set of numbers, mm. um, if nothing else. But, you know, much like a and Agatha Christie novel, once you know how the mystery works, it's not really um, going to confuse you when you read it the second time. Perhaps so. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, looking at, we've got Sri Lanka versus Australia coming up this Saturday. They're at the SCG. Sri Lanka actually has an excellent record at the SCG. Overall, in one day, they've uh, won six and lost 10. Against Australia there, they've won four and lost eight. I mean, even that's a pretty good away rate considering the Australian teams of the past. But um, six of those losses were in the 80s and 90s, so they're all last century, which means Sri Lanka have actually won four of their last six games versus Australia at the SCG between 2003 and 2012. I I never think away ground records are all that meaningful, though. They take place over such a long span and there's such limited data in them. I mean, they might be talismanic. They might might convince you that you're... To expect better luck than uh, than otherwise, but uh, the, the data doesn't seem to be particularly rich or meaningful. What do you think? Is uh, is Sri Lanka going to be able to 
take advantage? Is there anything about the SCG in particular? or, or oh, Look, is I it- think both in Melbourne and Sydney, they have a strong support base mm. and mm. that can only make you feel at home. But mm. even that, these are intangibles that you really mm. can't put a, you know, a, a runs price on, I don't think. So I think, yeah, it's it's really tough to know where Sri Lanka are at. You right can probably now. put a name on it. It's Sanat mm. Jai Sirius got a couple of big hundreds in one day as mm. the SCG, and mm. he's obviously not around any longer. I just think that uh, as far as their, their end in his tournament, one thing that we haven't spoke about is they have a record of, they have a history of just finding their way into the final four and final two of these tournaments against the odds in the past. And I don't know, they're, they're they don't seem likely. They don't seem like they should. They don't feel like they should. But I just wouldn't be surprised if they make a semi-final, especially if they can um, get a favourable draw in the quarterfinals. Well, I mean, that's the that's the essence of this tournament, isn't it? It's forty-two rather meandering games, and then seven absolute cutthroat games. And frankly, at that stage of the tournament, anything can happen. That's right. I mean, it's a, one of the vagaries of the competition that mm. England will probably sneak into the quarterfinals, despite being. You know, appalling and if they won three games on the spin they'd win the World Cup now mm. of course that won't happen but it, it speaks volumes about the shortcomings in the format mm. yeah I mean th- you know three games will will get you the title but I feel like Sri Lanka are, are always underrated but they've got a better history than almost anybody you know possibly probably aside from Australia of going deep into these tournaments you know they've mm. they've made the last uh, couple of finals they've uh, obviously had the win in 96 they've you know, and in the World T20, T20 yeah. World Cups as well, they've, mm. they've been mm. right amongst and it then. Just the really last. the fact that Sangakara, Dilshan and Jayawadana are, are batting from memory. These are mm. guys who have clocked the game of mm. one-day international cricket and, <laughs> you know... This, started over the scores <laughs> reset. <laughs> yeah, and th- th- that's just the way... You look at the scorecard after Sangakara's batted in both of those games and he had moments of ascendancy, but you look back and you think he's made 110 off 75 mm. balls without really breaking a sweat. Mm. And this guy just does it over mm. and over and over again. And you wonder what sort of hole Sri Lankan cricket will be in once mm. those two guys go mm. because it's just that's, that's something that you learn over time. And, you know, that's been the story of Sangakara's career, particularly is the way he's just improved in that that sense of building an innings in one day cricket throughout the course of his career mm. that he's just perfected the art of and and this is something that was particularly apparent against England who just seem to lose their way. So mm. many of their batsmen mm. can't construct a one-day international innings. Yep, and I, I think well, we're going to talk a bit more on Sangakara in the next couple of weeks um, as well, but really interesting to note, against Bangladesh, he got his fastest ever one-day 100. Against England, he broke that record again mm. and, and got his uh, set a new mark. So he, he doesn't absolutely flay it. You know, his, his Bangladesh one was 73 balls, his England one was 70, but that's still a, a very acceptable clip for a 37-year-old <laughs> batsman. Um, he's now got 23 one-day tons. He's fourth on the list of one-day ton makers. Jaya Suri is the only Sri Lankan ahead of him with 28. At the rate he's going, Kumar could almost catch him this tournament. He's still a beautiful player too. You know, it's not like he's um, become a David Warner. He's still... Bats the way that Sangakara always did. He just found a, a few extra knots to his uh, to his amplifier, and he's still an aesthetic feast. It's quite old fashioned batting. When when he retires from international cricket, something will go out of it. Uh, an extra dimension, a reminder of the way in which cricket used to be when batsmen were elegant and scored quickly. Particularly batsmen who have uh, played 357 games as the wicketkeeper <laughs> while still making all mm. of those runs. 401 games in total for Sangakara. That's gone! 
You're on the Guardian World Cup podcast with Jeff Lemon, Gideon Haig, Adam Collins and Russell Jackson. And in part three of the podcast today, we need to look at what happened at Eden Park. It was, it was chaos. It was disaster. It was, uh, it was all action. It wasn't all quality. It was thoroughly entertaining and exciting and trash in equal measures. Uh, Adam, can I get your thoughts? Well, the bedrock of cricket is a contest between bat and ball, and, and too often for too long in, the, in limited overs cricket, the, the bat has superseded the ball, and increasingly so. There's a profound hyperinflation in limited overs scores over the last 10 years or so, and this was a, a nice, refreshing throwback, seeing ball dominate bat. Uh, granted, the batting didn't help along the way, but it should remind us, that, uh, and it's been reflected upon a lot in the last couple of days, that a, a nice low-scoring one-day international game is as good as anything in world cricket. And we saw two types of uh, team innings in this game where you had Australia self-destruct mm. and uh, as good as, as Trent Bolt bowled, we had Maxwell and Marsh both chopped on from balls they could have left, Clark and Johnson both clubbed length balls straight to short cover. Mm. So you had a situation where a team completely self-destructed under pressure and then Conversely, with New Zealand's innings, there was pressure as well, but you just had a supreme, unplayable bowling performance by Mitchell Stark mm. that showed there is no counter to fast swing bowling, you know, 150k an hour hooping swing in, you know, mm. Yorkers. And this should happen, frankly, with two new balls at each end. You're not the top off the opposition top order and you're, you know, you're, you're running amok with a nearly new ball against middle order players who are used to just nurdling it round in the, in the middle overs. Then you're likely to have um, you know, high impact, fast, uh, intense cricket. You know, at, the end of the, um, at the end of each innings, the balls were 98, 96, 72 and 67 deliveries old. You, the, the, the gold lettering would still have been on them. Hmm. No wonder it was hooping around. It struck me that they ignored the very basics of playing swing bowling. One of the yeah. first things you're taught when you're a youngster learning the game is when the ball's hooping around, move those feet, move mm. that front foot. Mm. And those two dismissals, in particular Clark's and Johnson's, were a product of just playing away from the body and the two chop-ons likewise, playing straight back and trying mm. to force the ball out into the deep without any consideration for the back the been, ball's moving around. There's been so much talk in advance about the short straight boundaries at, mm. at Eden Park. Everyone had conditioned themselves to expecting a 300-plus um, bang-up fest uh, on both sides. It was almost that the, the batsmen couldn't talk themselves out of that. It, was, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, despite all that, there is a record for reasonably low scores at Eden Park mm. that, that runs counter to that narrative of this, mm. this ground is a postage stamp. But if you actually mm. look at the numbers, there's very few of the, the ridiculous scores that happen in ODI cricket happen at e Eden Park. And just going back to that issue of swing, there was an interesting quote from Clark at the end of the the game which you could read many things into but he said I think sometimes in T20 and one day cricket you can get up, caught up working on the power side of your game I don't mm. think we have had too many training sessions where we have worked on the start of our game and actually defending the brand new ball or the swinging ball and that's an area we can focus on which says a few things it says they're a little unprepared in that sense which isn't what the normal mantra mm. that that we're prepared for any situation, um, and it, it's also sort of a veiled criticism of Lehman in a way mm. too that they're not prepared. It, and it sounds like the preparation for it was akin to a home run derby. You read mm. the reflections from the correspondents who've been covering 
uh, the Australia mm. team. They, they, they say they were literally hitting balls, pongoing mm. balls into the mm. grandstand one after another after another, akin to like a baseball batting practice session rather than what you would do before a game of cricket when the opposing fast bowlers taken seven for 33, hooping it around corners just the week before. And never more evident than in Aaron Finch's dismissal, I think. Mm. He, he, played this, he played this shot sort of off the back foot, uh, straight drive to a good length ball that was moving, clobbered it down the ground for six, and I thought, you know, that's pretty rude. Mm. Um, that's not the ball to do that to. And then, you know, he tries it again next ball, and he's clean bowled. Uh, mm. Well, in, in advance, he'd actually been quoted as saying that he thought that, the, that swing bowling wouldn't be as potent because bowlers would have to pursue shorter lengths. Talk yeah, about and talking a lot of yourself into it. I think mindset. we used that. I think yeah. we, we, we made similar claims last week and Russell and I predicted mm. 350 runs apiece. But uh, as, as you suggested, Russ, in 69 innings, I think it is, uh, 69 matches at Eden Park, they've had five scores over 300. So mm. it's not a place where people score big. And just going back to that preparation thing, before the MCG game against England, I watched... Uh, there was a net session a couple of hours before the game. Smith was batting and Finch was batting, and they were batting next to each other. Both of them batting facing the, the dog thrower flicker things that the coaches mm. use mm. to save their arms. Now, Finch's practice was virtually was entirely power power based, mm. so he was trying to slog every ball out of the nets. Whereas it was fifteen minutes of watching before I saw Smith loft a ball, and he'd also had. He'd called for a coach that was left-handed to flick the ball from a different trajectory, mm. whereas Finch just had Craig McDermott standing there flinging them down dead straight and he was trying to smash every ball. And obviously there's, there's different forms of practice and that's a limited sample and, and there's plenty of other forms of practice they do. But it, it does make you wonder, we often talk about the weaknesses against swing bowling, but mm. how is it, how does a side replicate that kind of swing bowling in a mm. training scenario. You can face a limited amount of deliveries from Mitch Stark in the nets because they're not going to bowl him to death in the nets. So we, we say, oh, they should be prepared, but mm. it is actually a, it's, it's a very hard thing to prepare mm. for. Perhaps it's a mindset thing, though. I took a slightly different take on Clark's comment that you referred to before, Russell. It was the, I thought the subtext was more that they weren't adequately prepared to knuckle down. And, you know, the mm. old adage that you ignore history at your peril, if you look at Australian triumphs of World Cups past and take 1999 and 2003 on both occasions Australia had to get themselves out of very difficult situations after early collapses now mm. where's the provision for that in the current Australian batting lineup who's playing that there I say Michael Bevan or Steve Wall roll mm. from 99 or 2003 mm. Michael Hussey precisely mm. from 2007 there, there isn't anyone who, are, who is specifically modelled for that role um, in 99 you know Australia were 3 for 40 odd in that Super 6 mm. game against South Africa people remember Australia being undefeated in 2003, what they neglected are the pair of games at Port Elizabeth where we were four for 45 mm. or so in both uh, against New Zealand and England where Michael Bevan batted for you know, a substantial amount of deliveries to get Australia out of that. So I, I do you know, ask the question, if, if we have got a very good lineup when it comes to winning games in a flurry and, and, and hitting long balls and whatever else, but who's going to be the one that's going to nerdle and do the yards and the graft when it does get hard again? And being a World Cup, it will get hard again. That's why they're great. That's why World Cups are good. Australia will be four for 40 at some stage in our, between now and final day. And when that happens, who's going to step up? And it seems like the only possible option in that batting lineup to play that role is Michael Clark, but he's barely mm. played in mm. the last two years. Mm. He looked incredibly rusty. And, you know, getting out um, caught at cover is, is sort of your cardinal mm. no. sin. That's, that's yeah. the most basic method of dismissal because you've just gone mm. through the shot too early. So, Well, I think the question needs to be asked whether we need to 
talk about George Bailey again. I mean, George Bailey is a mature, experienced mm. cricketer who his international record at test level doesn't flatter, but and limited overs level, he, he does go to long ball, but his last at bat was um, an innings where he came in after two wickets have been lost in consecutive deliveries, mm. and he does seem to have that broader sense of perspective that some don't from time to time. I think if you remodelled him at five, um, there's a strong case for that, particularly with Shane Watson's sort of you know, enduring malaise. Yeah. He might be entering into that stage of his career, George, where the less he plays, the better a player he looks. Yeah. <laughs> Quite, could well be the case. I do acknowledge that. Yeah, you know, he may well have had a shocker out there as well, but yeah. uh, but he may have been the guy to calm things down and, and sort of try to get them up to a, a better total. And as things panned out, another 10 runs could have won them the game. Yeah, it's like in football finals. You, you rely on experienced big bodies to get you over the line in, in, in tough games of footy. I think the similar... Um, the analogy extends through to cricket as well. In, a, in, a, in an elimination tournament under high-pressure situation, give me someone who's been playing first-class cricket for 10 years. Thanks very much. Now, as Russell mentioned, Australia possibly being un- underprepared for this match. In terms of playing New Zealand, the last time Australia played New Zealand was at the last World Cup. Mm. Haven't played mm. them in four years. They, they're, they're a three-hour flight away. They've, they've been playing tremendous cricket for, for the last few years, really. They've been getting better and better. Um, is this... A, is this silly and B is this just absolutely rude by Cricket Australia and I'd also bring into the discussion the fact that in the uh, in next year's summer coming up New Zealand haven't been given the Boxing Day test mm. the West mm. Indies are playing the Boxing Day mm. test um, the West Indies are a, mm. a team I feel a lot of affection for but their their test form in the last 10 years has been absolutely corpulent you know it, it, they're they're a horrible test side at the moment they offer no competition to anybody they play why have West Indies mm. at the Boxing Day test? Why not have New mm. Zealand? And why have New Zealand been completely ignored by Australian cricket for mm. the best part of five years? Did anyone think it was slightly ridiculous that the Chapel Hadley Trophy was on the line? <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten what it looked like. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> will, it, will it be on the line in the World Cup final if the two countries meet there? Yeah, absolutely. So. In, in a random one-off World Cup pool match, mm. it's a series trophy. Mm. You know, yeah. you, you, you play a series and the series winner gets that trophy. And it was honestly like Cricket Australia looked around, sort of someone saw it in the car boot and said, oh, <laughs> should we take this? Oh, yeah, we'll take you. Oh, chuck it in. You know, it was the free steak knives into the World Cup pool win. Oh, you get the two points, but, you know, have mm. this as well. You know, whack that in the cupboard for two weeks. Well, we've we'll... been busy playing England and India. That's all we ever seem to play these days. And as far as the preparation, you know, we, that we referred to before, um, do we underestimate the fact that these players just haven't, they, they haven't played against New Zealand, mm. so they don't mm. know mm. what it's like to mm. face Tim Southey and Trent mm. Bolt because Australia are as familiar with New Zealand as they are with Afghanistan in the last five mm. years. They've played two ODIs against mm. them, both of them in ICC tournaments. Um, and we're missing, you know, we talk about the new rivalries that, that might have developed out of this World Cup with the UAE and Ireland. We're missing out on an ODI rivalry between two very good, explosive, mm. exciting sides at the moment mm. because New Zealand and Australia just don't play each other. Who even before that, you know, that, that sort of last five years or so when we were actually playing them, there were some tremendous one-day mm. contests, you know, that mm. a, a series over in New Zealand where um, New Zealand kept chasing 300-plus scores. Before the and, World Cup in 2007. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, you know, just, just some amazing contests that have been had, but they could have been getting better and better. Yeah, and there's a real chance to build on what happened on Saturday and the very strong likelihood mm. these teams will play each other again before the final day of March at the MCG. I'd, I'd suggest that there's a great chance to leverage off that and turn it into a, an annual event again. I see no problem with that, even if it's a couple of games each year just to keep the, the home fires burning, so to speak. Now, I'm going to dispute something Russell said earlier. Uh, he was talking about unplayable, menacing swing bowling and how good it was. 
I'm just going to be contrary here and say I don't think there was a great deal of good bowling in the Australia-New Zealand game. I think there was a lot of absolutely trash batting. Australia were rolled for 151 and panicked. Uh, New Zealand came out kamikaze style and tried to just gun down the runs as quickly as they could. And you can have that confidence even if you're losing a few wickets chasing 150. You just feel like you'll get there. You know, even when they were sort of eight for 146, you think they're going to get there. They need six runs. You know, it's not actually a chance for an Australian win. It's only when that last wicket goes down um, and suddenly they're nine for and you think, well, actually, they could lose it. They don't deserve to lose it, but they could. And, you know, Stark bowled beautifully, good, fast-swinging Yorkers. But I feel like those could have been dealt with had batsmen stood still, um, got the got the bats straight, uh, used their feet, and actually kept the ball out, which is exactly what the number 11 did, Trent Bolt. Stark had yes. four guys clean bowled. Mm. All of them were playing mm. stupid shots to the balls that he was bowling them. Well, they particularly were just quite the number loose. nine and ten, who were, but they need some, so they, they need yeah. a handful of runs to win. You're coming in batting at nine and ten. He's bowling. He's ripping in fast Yorkers at the stumps that are moving. And both Saudi and Milne tried to clobber those balls. They tried to hit them away for runs instead of keeping them out. Does that make it good bowling? Isn't that easier said than done? Keeping that ball out though, because mm. you see, Stark knows when he bowls that ball just before lunch to Ross Taylor, who's not in great form at the moment, he knows if I get a, a, a full in-swinging Yorker at this guy, he's going to be susceptible and he goes. And it was the same story with Elliot. Um, mm. He made guys who are reasonably good batsmen look flaky. And I think that, um, personally, I think that's good bowling. And maybe that's back to the conditioning again we were speaking about before, the preparation. How often are players coming out at 9 and 10 in limited overs cricket and trying to keep balls out of yeah. the block hole at 150k yeah. swinging, six, you know, swinging 6 to 12 inches? It's not, it's not something they're used to. Um, I think that's why it's such, you know, such good bowling, but also very challenging for these uh, non-recognised players to come out and face that. Is it something also to do, is it the flip side of the quality of the bats that are being used? That, uh, that, that encourages a certain kind of uncompromising... Um, term dictating kind of batting and any other register on the on in in batting tone becomes unobtainable we've created a generation of very aggressive very brittle um, international batsmen there is a sense that i mean people get on a batsman's back these days if they're striking at even under 100 mm. people start to criticise. Mm. If they're under 80 or 90, mm. people are all over them. You know, Ian Bell's played some very solid, sensible opening innings supporting uh, players, you know, Joe Root mm. against Sri Lanka and Moen Ali um, the previous week in a game we discussed last week. He, he's played those sort of slow, sensible innings. Um, Samuel Shenwari, mm. as we spoke about, playing a very slow innings that, that flowered late. Um, or... You know, even Misbah Haq, when mm. Pakistan finally got a win against Zimbabwe yesterday, he mm. ag- again was being criticised for batting slowly, but he got his team to a total. He made 70-odd, and he got his team to a total that they defended um, on a pitch that he said was a bit slow and mm. two-paced and tricky. How how unrealistic are we being with our demands that everybody strikes at a T20 rate? Well, the batsman who really let them down was Anderson, wasn't it? I think he played eight or nine balls, eight or nine scoreless balls, and clearly was fretting, um, and mm. then just played an absolutely brainless shot, lambed a ball from uh, two feet wide of off stump to, to mid on, and then the fox was in the hen house. And Stark he knew that. Back. There, was, yeah. there was this look of horror on his face. Mm. He knew at 131 for five, or mm. was when that wicket fell, he knew this this could be carnage mm. from here because I've exposed the tail. Yeah. But it was instructive that Williamson got them over the line, as you said, about that sturdy... Uh, going back to Sangakara again, it's a similar thing. 
Williamson, he he averages 58 in the last year and a mm. half in ODI cricket, and he hasn't done that slog sweeping mm. and, and switch hitting. He's done that with beautiful back foot drives, classical batting. Now, the, the shot he hit to win the game, obviously, oh. he stepped back and just clubbed it. But, but how but, good was the but, little fist pump while the ball was in the air? Oh, it was brilliant. But yeah. the, the, that the, there was a nervelessness about mm. that, the way he just stood there, he he moved and he just cracked it. But pe- but prior to that, as all that chaos was happening around him, he just stood firm. And um, although he took the single off the he first took the, of the single, and, the, and what mm. was interesting about that was in the Australian innings, arguably Australia put on a few more runs mm. because Haddon refused singles, mm. refused to expose Pat Cummins to mm. the pace of Milne. Eventually, Cummins played a few shots himself, and and Haddon started to trust him. But that there was this. It said good and bad things possibly mm. about Williamson and New Zealand that he just went, mm. I'm going to take this single off the very first ball of the mm. over and expose these guys mm. to, to Stark. Just on that ball that won the game, the Williamson six, I'm critical of Clark not bringing back Johnson. There's some context to that. Yeah, he went for a, went for a million and was looking, looking ragged, but there's no correlation with Mitchell Johnson between one spell and the next. Last year, mm. we all remember fondly that devastating spell at Brisbane that effectively set up the Ashes win. The first spell he bowled before lunch that day was trash. So, you know, there's no um, direct relationship between how he bowled before and how he'll bowl next. Michael Clark reportedly said to his teammates in the sheds after they were knocked over for 151 that we've got enough runs here. We have the bowling to bowl at anybody. Now, if you can't chuck the ball to your stud when you've got six runs to play with mm. and the other mob's best players at the other end, there's probably something amiss with that. I reckon that that was a, a, an error in judgment when, the, when, the, when, when someone like Mitchell Johnson has shown consistently that he can bowl out the best players in the game and, and Kane Williamson is without doubt the form player in, in world cricket right now. Well, the other issue being that they ended that game with Stark having only bowled nine overs, still yeah. had one up his sleeve mm. and we'd had overs from Mitchell Marsh and... Um, and Maxwell, Maxwell and so on in the meantime. And Johnson went for 68 off six overs. Yeah, yeah. And aside from the psychological and physical blow to McCullum, which obviously McCullum was rampant at that point, it was one good move that Clark made. He brought Maxwell in at short leg mm. and the signal was to McCullum, you're going to get a bouncer now. He got it. and or he get could, ready for a broken uh, F and arm. And he <laughs> nearly did. And that, But that aside, that one piece of intimidation aside, Johnson looked like a guy yeah. who you could, who a guy like McCullum could hit for a lot of runs, and mm. he did. And my favourite part of the day, I think, was at the press conference afterwards where um, McCullum was asked, you know, what about the arm? Is it broken? Will you be all right? And he just looked at the interview with disgust and said, <laughs> ah, I'll be all right. She'll be fine. <laughs> and walked off. That's gone. You're on the Guardian World Cup podcast. Jeff Lemon, Russell Jackson, Adam Collins and Gideon Haig taking you through the week of action. And as we set up section four to take us home for this week, we're going to look at the odds and ends, the bits we haven't got to and look forward to the games to come this week. Uh, We should, I think, make brief courtesy mention of Chris Gale's double century. Um, which happened nearly a week ago against Zimbabwe. Only brief. It was against Zimbabwe. He should have been LBW first ball. He was plum first ball. He was going to do it. He was going to do it at some stage during this tournament, and he did it against the poorest opposition he's faced so far. So um, I, did, I didn't read very much into it. Adam, we've railed about Hawkeye in this tournament. Um, that that uh, decision. I mean, he was given not out. The Zimbabweans reviewed it. It was said to be clipping the top of the bales, but it was just plum, wasn't it? You know, so as a cricketer, you just kind of know when something's out. That may mm. have said it was clipping the top of the stumps. That was out. 
I mean, you just feel it. It's a, it's a, you can't you can't express why, but that 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 ball the goal was out. Nevertheless, the West Indies to bounce back as emphatically as they did against Zimbabwe, only to completely capitulate in the last fifteen overs against South Africa. It speaks volumes about their about the state of where they're at as a, as a as a cricketing nation at the moment. But it really also goes to, and I've said this, how loose Pool B is. Like Pool B. Mm. Like mm. anything could happen. It's mm. it's the fun group. If Group yeah. A is the boring style group, Group B is the party group. You know, yeah. um, two will proceed now. Pool party. It, it's ludicrous to think that out of Pakistan the West, and the West Indies, one of those two is, and maybe both are going to make the second mm. round. Neither are very good cricket teams. Ireland has the best chance of any of those three of progressing, and I think that's great for world cricket. Ireland play Pakistan on March the 15th. It's two weeks from yesterday. It's a long way away, but that's definitely one worth watching for because that will be effectively who determines who goes through, to, assuming that um, India and South Africa keep winning. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to undersell Chris Gale. I'm a Chris Gale fan. I've enjoyed watching his work over the years, but I, I felt like, if this, if this makes sense, that was almost a terrible double century. It was. It seemed like Zimbabwe just bowled everything in his wheelhouse. Mm. All he had to do was stand there and clobber ball after ball over mid-wicket. And it was like they were giving him throwdowns in the nets to practice his deep mid-wicket shot. You know, he got the runs because there was just no way that he wasn't going to get them. But there was nothing, there, there were no shots in that innings where you thought, that's really good batting. He's done something, you know, he, he's, he's, he's moved himself. Which to- is a perverse thing to say about a guy who hit 10 fours and 16 sixes. But you're right, there was a monotony to that to that game and obviously just there was a deflation too about the West Indies posting 372 against Zimbabwe that and this has happened a lot in the tournament where a team makes a high score to start with and you know this isn't going to be chased mm. down and that's or, been or, or this isn't even going to be an entertaining chase no. this will be a fold no. well of course the South Australia the, the South Africa West Indies game was was exactly that kind of game you know de Villiers innings we haven't talked about that at all was just extraordinary in its versatility uh, as well as its power. And then, of course, Gale comes out, gets out cheaply, and you might as well go home after that. The fact that he came in in the 30th over, mm. A.B. de Villiers in mm. that innings, I mean, he did all that in 20 overs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it shouldn't be possible. He's doing things that no one should be able to do. 162 not out, 66 balls, 17 fours, eight sixes mm. at the SCG. And the thing that, that stays with me is he's, he was hitting exactly the same shots that he hit in that 31 ball 100 against the West Indies mm. only a month ago, where he comes outside the off stump, kneels down and sweeps the, the attempted mm. wide Yorker mm. over fine leg or backward square for six. Now, he did that time and time again in that 31 ball 100, <laughs> and they kept bowling it there. And then... Uh, you know, the other day Leg at the SCG, they kept doing it again. They kept putting it out there. And when he moves, the bowler then panics and bowls it as a full toss. So he gets it as a nice knee-high ball. And I reckon he had five or six of those in that um, that recent record-setting 100. And he had another probably four or five in this innings the other day. How does this happen? It's like it's an entirely new batting vocabulary to Villiers. But I feel like that's been co-authored by the bowlers in a sense mm. because – as you said, he gets down on the knee and Holder just feeds him those mm. balls. Holder had none for nine off five overs and ended up with one for 104 off 10. So he's gone for 95 runs in his last five overs by completely abandoning all of the previous principles. Now, obviously, those first five overs came to, to batsmen who who weren't running rampant like De Villiers was at that point. But yeah, but he's bowling to Hashim Amla, you know, he's, you, it's not like he's bowling yeah, to chumps. you're contributing to your own demise and that's the story of both those De Villiers innings against West Indies is that he's just being fed 
to his strengths have been fed. That capitulation from Holder was quite something. He actually bowled 27 dot balls, so 104 runs mm. came from 33 balls that he bowled. Yeah, 64 runs from his last two mm. overs, yeah. his last 12 Perfect. balls. He, five, he, five runs a ball. I mean, it, like it, it's it's astonishing. But, I mean, Adam, as, you know, as a bowler, is it – how difficult – is it to try to readjust? If you say Davili is moving across, is it possible to readjust in the delivery stride and target the stumps if you're already aiming to go wide? Yes, should, it is. I mean, should, in your last stride, often when they move in the last, I, I, I bang it in short when that happens by default. But um, that is that is not an easy thing to do to adjust mm. at the last minute. So I can see the the, the, the tactical nous that Davili is is employing by getting out his body outside the line of off stump. But it doesn't help when you're throwing down full full. But bungers, surely, um, surely when he makes that move, he should just get something on leg stump that bowls him and he's on his way. Like I mean. Am I being simplistic in thinking that that's a solution to to Davilia's playing like that, or would he have a counter to that? He probably would. Well, it's something that bowlers will need to adapt to. Cause you're not used to it. It's something that it's new, and as batsmen have adapted to the to a different type of game in the last sort of twelve or thirteen years since T20 have been with us, bowlers will also need to adapt. And one of the things they'll need to learn over time is how they. Um, can bowl to players who are moving at the last minute and moving quite distinctly into positions they've never been um, never been bowling to before. And De Villiers is the perfect exponent of that. He exercises an amazing thrall over bowlers, doesn't he? He just seems to enslave them. They seem to bowl where he wants it. Uh, that's an incredible psychological edge that he exerts. Or, or almost that he, he knows where it's going to be mm. bowled. He knows this is the wide mm. Yorker and he's in position and then they're powerless to mm. change what they were mm. going to do. Mm. Is there, I mean, a, a, do you think people are going to adapt to this, Gideon? Or do you oh, think this adapt, is a- they adapt to everything. Um, and de Villiers is an outlier. It's not as though everyone's going to begin to bat like him. But um, as, as Rusty's saying, he is extending batting's vocabulary in a way that I don't think Chris Gale actually is. No. I wonder whether Chris Gale, I wonder how much of Chris Gale's power is basically comes from his equipment. You know, I, you know there's an argument that his bat should be illegal. I don't think that de Villiers, that the bat is actually making all that much difference to de Villiers. Perhaps the ball carries further on certain strokes. And it's, but it's, it's a little bit of a cliche, but you see the influence of his hockey skills in those mm. shots that he mm. plays mm. in the horizontal bat shots that come from a low position, which is a stance of the hockey player getting mm. in low. And it's it's thrilling to see that that synthesis of skills from mm. different sports and the way he, he his presence is so strong and his personality as a sportsman is so strong that you see those influences of the other things he does mm. in the way he bats. Mm. He's really dictating a lot of the commentary on the entire tournament. When New Zealand beat Australia on Saturday, a lot of the online um, back and forth was, gee, it's a, it's, a, it's a blessing in disguise that Australia mm. will come second in the group because they won't get South Africa in a semi-final. Mm. And he seems mm. to, even though, and I agree with a lot of the commentary that Russell's offered in the last couple of weeks about South Africa's prospects, broadly speaking, particularly their bowling, but um, he... he inflicts a certain scariness. The idea that he's there and could do that in a heartbeat mm. and take your World Cup hopes away in the space of 20 overs, is, uh, is, is it's, it's right in the thinking of every cricket team mm. they're going to play against. Well, how vital was Mohit Sharma's run out of him during mm. the India Absolutely. game? Mm. Yeah, um, and you have to feel for Zimbabwe as well because they really pushed South Africa hard in that first game, mm. but then they've, they've come up with really ordinary performances versus West Indies and Pakistan, who are both teams that they could have beaten. Mm. They lost to Pakistan last night when you really felt that a win was well within grasp, chasing 230 or so. The pitch was a little bit tricky, but but uh, Pakistan, particularly uh, Mohamed Irfan, 
uh, bowled brilliantly to to keep Zimbabwe quiet, but you think that's one that Zimbabwe let slip. Yeah, and they've been as disappointing as Scotland, saying mm. that before, as far as the difference between their ability and their performance, in a sense, because Zimbabwe have got two players in Brendan Taylor and Sean Williams who are very, very, very good cricketers, all-round cricketers, who, for a side like Zimbabwe, as such a solid base to start with, they have a few explosive batsmen either side of them but the liability has been the bowling they've just Mm. been smashed and Zimbabwe is the kind of side who can make 270 to 300 against virtually any bowling attack but they can't they can't defend when they when Mm. they're bowling there's no defensive capability in their bowling I think we should finish off by having a look ahead to the games to come this week I'd don't think we need to have a lot of discussion about Pakistan v South Africa at Eden Park. I, I think we'd be fairly safe to imagine the South Africans should get home, given Pakistan's current batting form. Um, India versus the West Indies at could be a little interesting because it's at the Wacker. I feel like maybe that's somewhere where the, the West Indies faster bowlers could get a bit of assistance um, and India don't really have a pace battery, although Ravi Ashwin got excellent bounce um, and so did Jadeja when they were up against the UAE the other day. Um, Russell, Ireland have a big week coming up. They've got they've got Zimbabwe and they've got South Africa. So they're, they're playing the two African sides. Obviously, one would be seen as a more realistic prospect for a win than the other. Um, but they've been, as you said, they've been very aggressive, confrontational. They've been right in this trying to win it. And I have no doubt um, I, that they... They'll be looking at the South Africa games saying, we need to try to win this. We're not going to try to get away with an honourable loss here. And I think they'll probably take heart from the scare that Zimbabwe gave South Africa in the first game, that it's a it's a perverse thing to keep saying that the South African batting is vulnerable when they have the two best ODI batsmen in the world. But it, it was shown when they were reduced to, I think, 60 for four against Zimbabwe that, you know, you can... That once you get through, however it happens, once you get through Amla and de Villiers, uh, you know anything can happen. But I think they'll be Ireland will be looking at the Zimbabwe game as very, very winnable. Um, and you know, I don't think anyone expects them to beat South Africa, but they've certainly got the ability to give them a scare. But if they can seal that Zimbabwe win, they're deep in the points table. Not only deep mm. in the points table, they're a lock for third, really, mm. given the way the draw plays out. So that's a massive fixture for them, the Zimbabwe game. No doubt about it. But, uh, you know, the Zimbabwe have had a couple of reasonable performances, so whether they can come back, let's see. A, a massive week for Afghanistan as well. Mm. Adam, as you alluded to earlier, they've got Australia at the Wacker, and then they've got New Zealand at Napier. So it's going to be a pretty tricky seven days for the boys from the GAN. It's hard yakka for them playing the two co-hosts, no doubt about that. They're going to be the rank outsiders against Australia. However, their, their new bowl bowling and their, their, their you know trio of fast bowlers have been very effective. Each of them have taken a three or a four for so far and that's where we talked before about Australia's exposure. You get early wickets and I'm not saying they're going to run through Australia or anything, but they could provide some challenging moments early on. Would the Wacker help them? You know, like well, they, getting those guys on that on that deck. Intuitively, it will. I mean, that's what their strength is. They've got three blokes who can bowl over 140 k's an hour. That, that's what their their main calling card is. Australia, on the other hand, it'll be interesting to see whether they rest either Johnson or Stark for the set for the Sri Lanka game, which comes later that week. That'll be. Um, but really, Australia will be looking at this in the same way I think that South Africa looked at the West Indies game on Friday. They're going to want to 
clean out the pipes, make a statement after what happened the, the, the day before, and, um, and I think they'll want to bat first and you know, make 400 or something like that. That'll be what they're trying to go out and do and really issue a, a statement for the rest of the tournament. Um, Faulkner also returning. will be interesting to see whether it's Marshall Watson that makes way for him. You'd assume Marsh, but an outside chance maybe Shane Watson, given that the selectors are grouping Watson as an all-rounder rather than a batsman in their, in their dialogue. Um, so far in this tournament. As for the New Zealand game you mentioned, look, World Cups undulate. They, you know, there's some games you have to get up for and others you can um, perhaps work in a lower gear and fine-tune. If I were New Zealand right now, I'd certainly be looking at this as one of the latter, um, a chance to show a bit of squad depth, take their fourth bowler, I mean their fifth bowler rather. We don't know a lot about New Zealand's fifth bowler because we haven't had to see them an awful lot in Corey Anderson and mm. Grant Elliott because they're mm. just not required. So mm. It'll be a chance to expose a bit of that. I think maybe they'll um, take a look at Mitchell McLenahan, who, you know, of course, is the has the second best strike rate in the history of world cricket ever in limited overs games, and he's not getting a game for New Zealand at the moment. So there's a man of immense talent right there who I think they'll have a look at in this game as well. Um, so yeah, Afghanistan well up against it, but um, but uh, and I, uh, in many ways I wish they got those games at the start of the tournament um, and had the had a run home mm. that would have been uh, given them some chance to qualify and go through with England's um, England struggles. But I, but I don't think they'll be competitive as they have been last week. And a couple of sort of lower table games, Gideon, that mm. could actually be a, a bit of a wrestle. You've got Pakistan mm. versus the UAE, mm. which has a bit of spice yes. because a lot of um, ex-Pakistan or sort of you know players from Pakistan play in the UAE team. Um, and you've got Bangladesh versus Scotland, mm. who both struggled, and they're playing yes. at Nelson, those New Zealand grounds where you know some some of the scores have been lower and mm. the pitches have been slower. I mean, just as a general comment, you know, we lavished praise on the associates at the start of the podcast. The people who've been really disappointing have been the poorer of the full members, haven't mm. they? I, you know, we talked about West Indies before, but Pakistan have been you know, just. Classic Pakistan, terribly spasmodic and um, and but without the brilliance, really. Without they've, the they've brilliance, had the lows and, and none exactly. Of the high points. And and Bangladesh, I mean Bangladesh. When you look at Afghanistan, what Afghanistan's been able to accomplish from nothing in fifteen years. Look at what Bangladesh have been able to do over the same course. They've flatlined basically in fifteen years. They still look like a very disorganised, very self-interested, very mediocre side. And you've got to look back at the original decision to admit them as a full member in 2000 when they didn't even have a first-class structure and they've been given lots of opportunities and they've really flunked out at, at every course. It's really the polar opposite to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka got mm. given test status and they won the World Cup, yeah. I think, 15 years later. And, mm. and you know, Bangladesh are now less competitive than they have been at mm. almost any stage in those 15 years as a full member. And it's a, it's a big gap between the associates and the full members funding-wise. You know, it's eight million bucks a year for the, uh, for the full members and one million for the associates. Uh, cricket needs to be getting better value for money from those lower-ranked full members. Yeah, there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of drive to to want to get better. A lot of the, the Bangladesh effort this World Cup has just seemed indifferent. Well, I think a lot of the bilateral cricket that the, that the lower-ranked full members play these days is, is meaningless. And you know, in some senses, they're struggling to get up for, for a World Cup now. You looked at the West Indies playing against Ireland, though, and all I could think of was that they were they had half an eye on the IPL auction, that they weren't actually interested in what was taking place on the field. Right. And so it's it's sort of more about using ODI cricket as a context. Using to it make as a, a shop window. Yeah. The IPL does get blamed for a lot of things, so <laughs> we can uh, 
we can all that it as well. Well, that's that for this week on the Guardian World Cup podcast. Thanks for joining us once again. We'll be here each week as the tournament rolls on to review what's gone before and look at what is to come. Thanks to Russell Jackson, Adam Collins and Gideon Haig for joining me today. I'm Jeff Lemon and thank you to you also for keeping us company. We'll look forward to seeing you again in the weeks to come. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.